The number one cause of early onset asthma may have six legs. What are the therapeutic implications for mainly inner city patients if the pesty cockroach is to be dealt with? You're listening to Reach MD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. Joining us to discuss new real-world clues to asthma is Dr. Daniel Remick, Chair and Professor of Pathology at Boston University School of Medicine and the Boston Medical Center in Massachusetts. Thank you very much, and welcome, Dr. Remick. Thank you for having me. To begin with, could you tell us a little bit about the model for your research? The model for our research came out of a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine where it was shown that the major allergy that causes asthma among inner-city children is allergies to cockroaches, so not to outdoor pollen, not to dog dander, cat dander. It was actually cockroaches. And so because that was the major allergen, we had the idea that cockroach allergens should be in the house dust where the children are living. At that time, I was at the University of Michigan, and so we partnered with the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan and identified children who had asthma based on a questionnaire. And then we worked with teams, people from the School of Public Health who would go and do cleaning in the house, and instead of throwing the dust away, we collected the dust and we measured the cockroach allergen in the dust. So then when we measured this, we found a house that had a really high concentration of cockroach allergen. We went back to that house. We got a big, huge dust bunny by vacuuming extensively, and we just went and let that dust bunny sit in water overnight. We spun the junk out of it, gave that water, or what we're calling a house dust extract, to mice, and the mice get asthma. And that's how we started the model. You sensitized the mice first. You injected them and then later on exposed them. Is that, is that what you did? So this is a good question because it's controversial a little bit how we first started the model and we've subsequently changed it. So a lot of asthma models, there's an adjuvant, just like if you're giving a vaccine for you know, measles, mumps, rubella, there's an adjuvant that acts as a depot so you get better immunization. So we started the model off by injecting the mice and then exposing the lungs to the house dust. But now over the last two or three years, we just use pulmonary exposure to the house dust so there's no adjuvants at all, so no injections, just putting it directly into the lung. So they're exposed first, one time, and then exposed a second time? We do a total of three exposures. The first time is a sensitization, and then two weeks later we do one challenge, and then three weeks, so three weeks from the first, very first challenge, one week after the second challenge, we give them their final challenge, and then we follow the asthmatic response after that. So this is really different than we're used to reading about genetically created proteins that are used in challenges. So this is the real McCoy. This is the real stuff that our children are being exposed to. That's correct. And there's a couple of things that are different about the model. One is we use a thousand times less allergen than a typical asthma model where they usually use ovalbumin or egg white. So we're using a lot less allergen and we also have a lot fewer exposures and we're still getting a very robust asthmatic response. You know, you said you were in Michigan. Can I assume then that you went to Detroit? That was the the city that you investigated, or was it some other large city? No, it was Detroit, yes. And mainly it was inner-city children in Detroit. Correct. Our partners at the School of Public Health had relationships with some community clinics in the Detroit area where patients were underserved, and so that was who we were working with. When the mice were sacrificed, what did their lungs look like? 
One of the things that we like to do is, if we're going to be sacrificing the mouse, is to get as much information as possible. So before we sacrifice the mouse, we do whole body plasmatography with a methacholine challenge. So just like if you had an asthmatic, and I know you wouldn't typically challenge no. an asthmatic, yeah, right. but if you were doing pulmonary function tests on an asthmatic, we're essentially doing pulmonary function tests on the mice before we sacrifice them, and we can tell that they're wheezing. So we know which mice are, you know, have the asthma, and we know what interventions we've done in terms of if they've been effective or not. So we know, you know the mice that are wheezing. Then we sacrifice them, and when you just look at the lungs grossly, there really isn't very much going on. So you can't really tell that the mice have got asthma. But when you go and lavage the lungs out, so you just do a bronchoalveolar lavage, and you measure in the fluid, there's a ton of inflammatory mediators in the fluid. And there's also a large number of inflammatory cells, particularly eosinophils. When you see these eosinophils, does this suggest an implication for treatment? Yes and no. So the eosinophil is a signature cell for asthma. If you've got an, if you've got an eosinophil and you've got pulmonary, you think either parasites or asthma. Of course, if in the United States, you typically think of asthma. So it's logical to go and block things that would block the eosinophil. So our very first paper, what we did is we gave antibodies to eotaxin. Uh, and eotaxin is a chemokine that attracts and activates eosinophils. That's why it has the name eotaxin. So we gave antibodies to eotaxin, and, and it worked quite well. And what was interesting is when we gave the antibodies, we tried giving them intravenously, and they didn't work as well. But then we gave them like you would an inhaler. So we gave it down the lung and then gave the asthma challenge, and they worked really well that way. Are there any other implications to treatment? We're starting to identify a number of other mediators that are in that lavage. And so not just the eosinophils, but we're looking more at the chemical components, so the cytokines and the chemokines and the leukotrienes and those sorts of things that would bring the inflammatory cells in. And one of the things that we're starting to see is that there are things that cause the bronchoconstriction, and this is not unique to us. You know, we don't want to sound like we're being too arrogant here, but there are chemicals that cause bronchoconstriction. There's mediators that cause mucus production, and there's mediators that cause inflammatory cell recruitment. And it's not always the same mediators. So as we're going through, we're finding some things like high-dose glucocorticoids, dexamethasone, block everything. But other things like the anti-eotaxin work better on blocking eosinophil recruitment than they do on, say, blocking airways hyperreactivity. You mentioned in some of your research the use of tumor necrosis factor inhibitors. I'm familiar with this as far as their use in inflammatory bowel disease like ulcerative colitis. Could you tell me how this may be used in the treatment of asthma? So one of the things that we have done is when we're challenging the mice and looking at the, what's in the lavage fluid, we found a high level of tumor necrosis factor in the lavage fluid. And as we went back through what's in the house dust, it turns out that there's a lot of endotoxin so the, from gram-negative bacteria in the house dust. And endotoxin is everywhere. So if you, you know, it doesn't matter if you've got a clean house or a dirty house or you have an ultra-clean lab room, endotoxin is, just a, is everywhere. But endotoxin strongly stimulates the innate immune system, which includes production of tumor necrosis factor. So when we saw that the TNF was significantly elevated, said, okay, that may be a natural target because it's up. So that was one thing. Second is asthma is a chronic disease. I mean, there are acute exacerbations, but it's really a chronic disease. And then if you think of TNF inhibitors, just like you were saying, you're familiar with TNF inhibitors for treating chronic disease, such as inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis, it's, it's a miracle drug for those. So we had a target. We had a compound that would, that would work. We've got a disease state that seemed to be natural for it. So we put the TNF inhibitors in our model and it worked extremely well.
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me to discuss new real-world clues to asthma, that is cockroach dust, is Dr. Daniel Remick, Chair and Professor of Pathology at Boston University School of Medicine and the Boston Medical Center in Massachusetts. You mentioned this tumor necrosis factor inhibitor and that asthma is a chronic disease. It's been reported, certainly, that tumor necrosis factor inhibitor is associated with infectious complications and the development of malignancy. How do you see the use of these kinds of wonder drugs in a person who has chronic asthma? That's a good question because there is some risk for infectious disease, and there's been a JAMA article that came out that did a meta-analysis and showed that there was an increased risk for infection. And if you are a clinician taking care of patients with chronic conditions, you know you need to do a tuberculosis workup before you actually start someone on a TNF inhibitor. So although they are miracle drugs, there are some downsides to them. But the risk of infection isn't particularly strong. I mean, it's clearly there, statistically significantly there, but it's, it's not that every person who gets an inhibitor comes down with an infection. But if you are going to put a person on one of these TNF inhibitors for treatment of asthma, you're going to need to monitor them carefully to make sure they don't come down with an infectious, you know, an infectious complication. So the other thing is that we think, and we, we're not sure, but we think it may work for a TNF inhibitor because it's being made in the lung to just give it as a bronco inhaler. So rather than giving it systemically where you may have more immunosuppression, it may work better to just give it as a bronco inhaler. So that's one alternative. That's one way. The other way is that you could potentially combine the TNF inhibitor with some steroids. And so you, you could use less steroids and less TNF inhibitor to block the asthma but not basically immunosuppress the patient. Similar to the, the use of steroids and bronchodilators, that you can reduce the dose. Do you see us trying to desensitize young children to this particular allergen? Yes. As you probably know, allergy shots work sometimes but don't work all the time. And there's a, a number of reasons why they don't. But if you could, in effect, vaccinate against cockroach allergens, that would be better than treating the symptoms once, once they come up. You, you probably don't need an immune response to cockroach allergens. You don't have to worry about you know, blocking that and then causing downstream effects from that. But it would appear to be a fairly good target, especially in the, in the inner cities, if a safe and effective vaccine could be developed. I'm glad you brought up the word vaccine because I have visions of, in this underserved area already, people going for weekly desensitization shots the way they might do, in, say, in my practice. It doesn't seem really practical, or at least my initial response, it doesn't seem practical in an already underserved area that's having difficulty getting medical care to suddenly now add this added burden of going regularly. But a vaccine that you might give just once or twice might make sense. And part of the problem with the vaccine development for allergens is that a lot of the allergens are proteases. And so if you try to immunize with the allergen, it chews itself up. And so the protease, while the allergen is sitting out at you know, 25 degrees Celsius, it's not as active. But when you put it into the body and you raise the temperature to 37 degrees Celsius, now the protease is going to get active. And so there's some work going on right now about possibly putting protease inhibitors along with the allergens for doing immunizations so that you, you could potentially prevent that protease from degrading itself and you'd get a better immunization. 
This all revolves around, like everything in medical care nowadays, cost. And certainly the cost of frequent visits to the emergency room by children in the inner city or in any part of the United States has tremendous cost. Do you see any way that the program we might have for treating cockroach allergy might reduce costs? And do you see really the economic stimulus package getting involved in asthma research? I think at this point the research is still a little too early to go and have a two-year horizon, which is what the economic stimulus package is supposed to cover. So it would be hard to try to translate this during a, during a two-year interval because these papers are relatively recent uh, out of our basic science lab. So, so maybe too soon for that. But in terms of the economic impact, the economic impact is actually pretty large. And I talked about the original New England Journal of Medicine article where they identified the cockroach allergen. They actually correlated it with a number of things, things such as you know, emergency room visits, days of school loss, days of work lost by the parents because they had to take their children to the, do- to the doctor. So the economic impact of this is extremely large. We've always considered asthma a type 1 hypersensitivity response, that it was really an adaptive immune response. Your data suggests that there's an innate immune response. Is there a conflict in this thinking? I don't know if I'd say a conflict is more of an evolution and that we could be both are true. So in other words, it could be a component for the innate immune system and a component of the classic type 1 hypersensitivity, and both of them are working together to actually contribute to the asthmatic response. So it's not that it's one or the other, but I think they both may be working together. And this concept is actually holding up in things like transplant rejection, because transplant rejection is a classic delayed type hypersensitivity reaction that shouldn't involve the innate system at all. But they're finding that things that modulate the innate system are also having impacts on the transplant rejection. You know, we've been talking about the cutting edge of medicine. Can we talk a little bit about the hygiene hypothesis of getting rid of cockroaches? What can be done on a soap and water basis? Just, you know, cleaning up soap soap and water is probably going to help, but it may not help that much. What may be more important, though, is what's called integrated pest management. And so for that, what you're doing is you're going into the apartments or the, you know, place where the children have asthma where there's a significant cockroach infestation. And so you do... Not just, you know, kill the cockroaches that you can see, but you do integrated pest management. And I'm not an expert in this area, but it works long-term to reduce the cockroach levels in the home. I want to thank my guest from Boston University School of Medicine, Dr. Daniel Remick. We've been speaking about new research that suggests cockroach excrements found in inner-city household dust might offer clues to the development of asthma in these communities. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And thank you for listening.